Father, we should be humbled when we consider the enormity of our sin, the mountain of sin that's piled up in us in comparison to the infinite, unending, and eternal holiness that is you. And that you would take from us this crumbled, humiliated pile of worthless ashes and breathe life into us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of your Holy Spirit is an unspeakable and inexpressible joy. So let our lives reflect the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. May you be honored and glorified. May your spirit reveal the truth of your word and change hearts and minds for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We're in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 6. And verse 7. So we have a text before us this morning that brings up a challenging question. And the question that naturally comes from this text, I think it naturally comes from the text. I don't know if you'll think that, but I tried to find a way around the question. How can I address this text and avoid the question altogether? And I couldn't really do that because of the context of where we are right now. We are a body of believers reading a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a body of believers. So there's no unbelievers involved in this transaction, right? Theoretically speaking, the true church is made up of only genuine believers. So this is to the church. So this is from a believer to believers, read by believers. There's no unbelievers involved here. And so when we read this text, you can't help but go, well, what does this have to do with believers then? And it automatically forces us to kind of think of this question. And the question is something like this. How much can a believer sin and still be saved? Now that question is a very difficult question to answer. There's so many factors to consider. So many theological things to consider, so many Bible verses to consider, so many practical and pragmatic realities to consider. It really is a very difficult question to answer. Because you think about, like, if a, if a believer sins, let's say, a lot, then at what point would we look at that believer and say, you sin to the point where I question your salvation? Well, then we say, well, who are we to question people's salvation? But then the Bible tells us that we should be discerning and we are to judge, and judgment and discernment is a, is a uh, recognizing a reality in somebody's life and comparing it to Scripture and determining certain things about it, and whose role is it to say whether a person is saved or not saved? Is it on everybody to do that? Is it just on pastors? There's a lot of things to consider. You know, some, I, think, I think most of the church would look at somebody and say, well, if you prayed the prayer and they say that they're saved, it doesn't matter what they do with their life. They're just saved automatically. They could, you know, or, or they could just sin forever and nothing in their life could ever change at all. They just go back to their old life. Would we say that that person's saved? Some people would say, definitely not. Some people would say, yes, because of grace. And some people would say, it's not up to us to say. It's up to God to know. So there's a lot of things to think about. If somebody gets saved and they don't live a Christ-like life of obedience, we could say, well, maybe maybe this is just the journey they're on. And, you know, God will change them eventually. And it's like, I'm for that. I I believe that. I think if they're genuinely saved, God's going to do his work. But how long do we wait? A month? 
What if they don't do, what if they're not obedient for a whole month? Well, I just got to give them time. God's working. Okay, two months, six months, year, two years, five years, ten years, their entire life. At what point do we draw a line and say, all right, you're not saved? (laughs) Well, the Bible doesn't draw a line for us. And so this question of how much sin can a believer still do and, and, and still be saved? And let me just clarify, we do not teach and we do not believe that the scriptures say that you can lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. So if someone says they're a believer but is not, then they were never saved. They weren't saved and then lost it. Scripture doesn't teach that. So we've got kind of this like, difficult question that kind of lays before us when we look at this verse. And this is what the verse says, Colossians 3, 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So he's talking to Christians and saying the wrath of God is coming. So we've got this this idea or this question about like coming for who? Coming for believers? Well, that can't be. God's wrath can't come to believers. So first of all, we've got to back up and just understand some things in this text. In the verse, Paul writes, on account of these, what is these? These is a reference to the sins listed in verse 5. So you've got verse 5 has a list of sins. Verse 8 has a list of sins. And right in between, in verses 6 and 7, we have these words. On account of these The wrath of God is coming. In, verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So what is these? These are the list of sins. Now is it the list of sins from verse 5 or the list of sins in verse 8 that he's about to read? They're the list of sins in verse 5. I'll explain, when I get to verse 8 next week, I'll explain to you why the word these sins are not about verse 8, but only about verse 5. And the sins listed in verse 5 are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which we covered last week. So, the wrath of God is coming, according to verse 6, the wrath of God is coming for those who do sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And the wrath of God is a reference specifically to his eternal judgment or hell. So, this text seems to be about unbelievers because believers can't face God's wrath because Christ has already absorbed the fullness of God's wrath for us. So then, what does this have to do with us? Well, Paul's point here is ultimately that if these sins specifically incur the wrath of God and these sins mark unbelievers for wrath, then why would you, who knows God, knows that he should be feared, knows his holiness, and knows his hatred for sin, why would you, who knows that, ever want to be associated with the things he intends to eternally condemn? And that is really the heart of Paul's message here. You are no longer children of wrath, so act like it. Essentially, this verse is saying, and this is when I rephrase this, this is what's going to make us go, well, what about believers, okay? This is what this verse is really saying. Anyone who sins in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness is going to hell. And... That's a terrifying statement, especially for unbelievers, but a confusing slash terrifying statement for believers. Because if that's true, and I say I'm a Christian, but I am sexually immoral or impure or sexually driven passion or with sexually driven evil desire or I covet, which is idolatry, then I'm going to hell, but I can't go to hell, I'm saved. We've got this conundrum, this question. I can't go to hell, I'm safe. And I'm saying that that mentality is super dangerous. If, so here's, here's really the question. What if a believer is doing these sins? Then what? What if a believer is doing these sins? 
If God does not pour out his wrath on the believer who does these sins, then this verse is not true. So I'm going to rephrase that. There's a believer who's doing these sins. If God does not pour his wrath on that believer, then this verse isn't true. But God can't pour out his wrath on believers. And this verse is true. So now what? Of course this verse is true. So that must mean that this is only true of unbelievers. God's wrath for these sins will only be poured out on unbelievers. So that must mean that if you are doing these sins, you must not be a believer because you will receive God's wrath. And God, can, God can't pour his wrath on those whom have already been atoned for in Christ. Now, that's where the question of the conundrum comes in. Because I bet that there's lots of testimonies, I know because I've heard them, of people who are Christians who are doing these sins and Jesus redeems them from their sins. And those people would claim, well, I was saved, I was still doing those sins, and, and I have become obedient. And so that person validates their salvation through obedience. But if you stay in these sins, then according to this verse, the wrath of God is coming. And the wrath of God can't come on believers, but it can come onto unbelievers. So we've got this kind of just, well, what about believers? And what if they're doing these sins? And what they... So that's a question. And, and listen to me, I want to answer it. I really want to answer it. I want to dive into that. I want to pick that apart, figure out, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how, and all this stuff about, you know, how much can a believer sin? How close to sin can a believer get before they're, you know, before we, they're really not actually saved? And how much grace is, covers sin and doesn't grace cover all the sin? And, and pick that apart. That's naturally the question, and that's naturally what we want to answer. But here's the problem. Paul doesn't answer it. In fact, Paul doesn't even bother with it. Paul has something else to say. And this is what he says. He isn't trying to have a theological conversation about whoever, you know, whether believers can do these sins and still get away from whatever. This is Paul's solution to the problem. Verse 5. Put these sins to death. That's the solution. His motivation is not to try to figure out whether a believer can do these sins and still escape hell. And his motivation is not to try to figure out how close to these sins a believer can get without going to hell. He's not trying to figure out, where's the line, man? How much can I do and how much can I not do? How much can I get away with? How much can I not get away with? He is trying to say, just put him to death. And the problem with that kind of thinking of just how close, how much can I do, how much can I not do, how much sin can I do that's covered by grace, and how much, you know, what point does it re actually reveal that I never, never was actually saved, or, hey man, I'm saved and I'm covered by grace, I just keep sinning all the day long, and Romans 6 says, nope, can't do that. And so we got this just this theological idea tossed around in our mind. And Paul's like, why even have that thought? Why struggle with that question? Why even put that question on the plate? Why even try to figure it out? Why even bother? Instead, put the question to death by putting your sin to death so that there is no question. Amen. The problem with that kind of thinking is that it just doesn't agree with what the Bible teaches. It produces an attitude towards sin that says, it's okay if I sin because I can't face God's wrath because of Jesus. And that just is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that believers are saved from God's wrath because Christ took the wrath for them. But after being saved, never does the Bible say, you know what, now that you're saved, you're safe. So kind of just do what you want. Doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. It's all paid for. Run up the tab, man. It's already paid for. That's not how... Scripture gives a, paints a much different picture. Once you've been saved by grace in Christ, through your faith in Him, the way that believer's life looks in Scripture becomes a 
strictly obedient life. And in any way in which it's not obedient, what grace then does is sanctify you toward more obedience. Never does it say, it's okay to just keep sinning. Scripture never teaches, never teaches that God is passive towards sin. He's never passive towards sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you're a believer, then your sin may not be punished in you, but it was punished in Christ, in Jesus. All sin will receive God's wrath. And Jesus says that if that is true of you, and he has atoned for your sins, then he is your Lord and your master, and that we must obey him and and what and not just that we must obey him but that we will want to obey him first john 5 3 for this is the love of god that we keep his commandments how do you love god obedience i tell my children that all the time when you don't obey me you are telling me you don't love me The way you love me is by obeying me, but not just obeying me, because obedience isn't complete without joy. You can't just do what I say with a grumpy, disgruntled, terrible, whiny, complaining attitude. That's disobedience. Even if you complete the task, it's disobedience. I want your joy. God wants your joy. And listen to how he ends this verse. Loving God is not just doing what he says, but it's doing what he says joyfully because he ends this verse and says, and his commandments are not burdensome. When do we whine about obedience? When it's a burden. When do, when do children whine about their chores? When they're in the middle of playing on the PlayStation, right? When they're like having fun or watching TV or playing a game or, you know, like playing with their friends, like, hey, stop what you're doing, stop having fun and go do a chore. Like, ah, burden. (laughs) Burden, it's a burden. And instead, that's how we live our lives because we're doing our own thing. When we aren't living our life that is so, in in such a Christ-centered, spirit-filled God-glorifying, biblical way, that so much so that every moment of our life is, there's a reason that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. That means live your life in a constant state of prayer, always ready to pray, always praying, always jumping on prayer, always ready with the Lord. Like you're, you're, you're like walking in step with them, like every step is like, are you ready, Jesus? Okay, next step. Are you ready, Jesus? Okay, next step. Ah, something hard. Jesus, help me. Okay, are you ready, Jesus? Next step, right? Like your whole life is step in step with Christ, so much so that your attention is so focused on Christ because you're so in the word and you're so filled with the spirit that you're always ready to pray and always prepared to pray and oftentimes, usually, always praying. And we think, well, those are for crazy, radical Christians. No, that's for Christians, And if that's your life, if that's how you live your life, and you're constantly in that mode with Christ, spirit-filled, and and, and you're in the middle of doing something that you enjoy, and then all of a sudden you're burdened with a command from God, it should provoke in you this incredible joy, like, I get to obey Jesus right now. I get to put my life in Christ to the test in this moment and do what he demands of me. I love that. If my children love me so deeply because I'm so well connected to them and I, and I speak to them and I love on them and I hug them and I kiss them and I pray over them and I teach them the word and I'm invested and I'm invested and I'm invested more and more and more every second of the day and then I look at my son while he's in the middle of playing a game and I say, hey son, go do this for me and he goes, sure dad. Like, oh, I'm so in tune with my dad that when he asks me to do something and shift gears, I'm already ready to shift because I'm so used to being in step with my father. And then, and then the, the command isn't a burden anymore. It's a joy. Genuine believers don't just obey him. They want to obey him. Now, we're not perfect. So we don't do it perfectly. We all know that. 
But we can't lean on our imperfection. That's the problem. We lean on our imperfection. We don't obey and go, eh, I'm not perfect. And that's never how Scripture identifies the Christian. Instead, Scripture says, yeah, no, actually, you are perfect. In Christ, you're perfect. Positionally, right now, the effectual day-to-day living of your life is not perfect. You are not perfectly obedient, neither am I. But my position in Christ before God is perfect. In Christ, I am perfectly righteous, which means my life now is in the trajectory of toward perfection. So when I fail and sin and I disobey, why would I turn around away from perfection and go, eh, look at me, I'm not perfect. That's like to excuse the sin. Instead, if our eyes are focused on the perfection of Christ, which we have and whom we are, then when we sin, instead of going, eh, I'm not perfect, we look forward to our perfection and go, I have failed to meet the standard that Christ has established in me and for me. And therefore, in my sin, I should be broken and humbled and on my face in genuine, heartfelt repentance to God for the sin that I have committed. And in that brokenness, Psalm 51, God heals broken bones and restores out of humility righteousness. And as David says in Psalm 51, it restores us to joy. Because the arrogance is when we turn away from perfection and look at our past and go, eh, I'm not perfect, as if you, trying to be perfect, had something to do with the equation, because it didn't. The only way we can achieve that perfection or work toward that continual, that, that sanctifying process of getting to perfection, which we finally get when we're glorified, the only way we can do that is by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in you. So the only way that you can be humble is to turn towards the perfect glory that we will one day be and continue to work towards that. It's arrogance to turn your back on that and look at who you were. So though we're not yet perfect, we do love our Lord. We do love our God and we love his commandments which are good for us And we understand that and we love that he cares enough about us to give us commands that make us righteous or that that produce or reveal the righteousness of Christ in us. We're not making righteousness. We're revealing what the righteousness of Christ that is already there. And we love to obey his commands because we love him. As I've said before, believers will obey. Look at the next verse, 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He's not, t- that's, he's not talking about the future. He's not talking about eternal life. He's not saying that every believer will one day be saved and be glorified and overcome this world and be in heaven. He's not talking about the future. He's talking about now. He's saying that everyone who's been born of God, that means that person's genuinely saved, has the Holy Spirit, is, re- is redeemed in Christ, regenerated heart will today, in this fleshly life, overcome the world. Which is what Paul says in our Colossians 3 text, in verse 1, 2, and 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Not on things that are on the earth. Verse 5, therefore, or put to death, Therefore, what? What is earthly in you? You have overcome the world. Put to death the world in you. Put to death the things that are earthly in you. And then he lists the things, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Believers will obey. Now, I do need to encourage you in this because it sounds very condemning. It's like, well, I guess if every time I disobey, it proves I'm not saved. But then I obeyed today, so did I just get resaved? And then I disobeyed the next minute, now am I unsaved? And then saved, and then unsaved, and saved? If that was our life, oh man, can you imagine the whirlwind we'd be in? There goes assurance of salvation. There goes eternal security. The Bible is clear that we still live in the flesh. Look at Galatians 5, that there are desires of the flesh that creep up. 
But never does scripture tell us that that's okay. So the focus, it's all about the focus and the motivation. What are we centered on and thinking on and moving towards what's motivating us? What is our perspective? And the perspective that scripture never paints is, you know, whatever, you're not perfect, it's okay. Instead, scripture paints this other picture. Fight the good fight. Battle for righteousness. Wake up every morning. Dying to self. Carrying your cross. Putting sin to death. Fight, fight, pray, read, study, commune. Do the things that believers are commanded to do. Why? It's for your good. It will, it will create desire and passion for Jesus. It will build up sanctifying work in you. You will become more like Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit by communion with the Father. That's the kind of picture that is painted for the believer. To look toward who you are in Christ and walk that path. So Paul is not interested in debating how close a believer can get to these sins without going to hell. And that is a supremely dangerous perspective to have. Instead, Paul is interested in what he said in verse 5. Put these sins to death. Don't toy with them. Don't play with them. Don't flirt with them. Kill them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. That word passion like we talked about last week, that's a sexual passion. And that evil desire is a sexual evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. If we have a healthy and biblical view of God, then we know that Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you look at Jeremiah 20.11 is one of my favorite verses. It says, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. I love the way that, that, that Jeremiah paints that, vis that visual of God. <laughs> of all the great warriors in the history of time who have killed thousands of other warriors, none should be feared more than God himself as a dread warrior. And his battle is against sin, not against believers. So why would we want to be in the camp of sin where unbelievers await God's wrath? Why would we want to be anywhere close to the coming fire? I once heard this analogy. I've heard it a couple times, actually. This analogy that Christians often, that there's this line, right? That there's this line of sin. Like, don't cross the line because that's sin. And so... Christians often try to see how close to that line they can get without sinning. And then I heard the counter to that idea. And here's the counter that I heard. Instead of seeing how close you can get to the line, you should be running away from the line. See how far away from the line you can get. Get away from the line of sin. But here's my issue with both of those perspectives. I think they're, I think they're, they're both not the best solution. Because when you try to get too close to the line, how close to the line can I get? You are playing with what you think is grace, but what you're really playing with is fire. While you claim grace, well, I can get close, I'm still safe, I'm still on the side of the line. Here's the problem with running away from the line. Who's doing the running? You are. You're working. That's all on you. Your endurance, your work, your legs, your marathon, you're the one running. That's legalism. That's an overcompensation for getting close to the line. So what's the real solution? The real solution is instead of even considering the line, don't even think about the line. Turn your focus to Jesus. Make Jesus your goal. So here's the idea. If Jesus is your focus and not the line of crossing the line or running away from the line. If Jesus is your focus and you are living your life hand in hand, side by side with Christ, you'll never have to worry about coming close to that line at all. Because if you're walking side by side with Christ and your focus is on him and you follow him, he will never lead you anywhere near that line. And you don't have to think about that line because he's the leader and you're the follower. And if he's your focus, who cares what the line is, where it is, what it means, whatever. Who cares? Just follow him. He'll lead you to righteousness. And as he leads you away from the line, which is ultimately the goal, 
then you won't sin. You'll obey. Jesus didn't come to earth and say, and just say, do not sin. Because that would, have, would, that would not have solved the problem with the Jews' understanding of the law. They were so law-oriented. And if Jesus came down and said, just don't sin, the Pharisees would be like, yeah, I know. That's what we've been saying. We like your message, Jesus. Did they like Jesus' message? No, they did not. Jesus didn't just say, the time of no longer sinning is here. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's the kingdom of God. He's talking about himself. And he doesn't say, the, the time of no longer sinning is here. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, I'm here. Finally here. Focus on me. Get your eyes and your minds off the law and get your hearts and minds centered on me. Don't focus on what you can't do. Don't focus on the rules and the laws and the commands. Focus on me. I will reveal the truth to you. I will show you what commands to do. I will show you what is righteous. I will show you what is sin. And I will lead you to righteousness. And I will lead you away from sin. You don't have to worry about what the law says. You don't have to worry about all the rules if Christ is your focus because he reveals them to you. If we approach scripture with, all right, what are all the commands in the Bible? Google all the commands in, in the Bible. I've done it before because I've been curious many times. And you get a bunch of different websites by some random you know, guy at home on his computer just listing off sins and he's got his own website. And sometimes they're a little weird, a lot of flashing, moving things on their website. You know, like, and you can tell it's kind of like not on the up and up sort of, but there'll be like a list of sins that's like a mile long. I mean, really, if you boil it down, what are all the sins? And then you get a list of all the commands and all the sins. And here's all the things I can't do. Here's all the things I should do. Okay, I'm going to take the should do's. I'm going to do these. I'm going to avoid these. And you start living your life like that, you know better than a Pharisee. If your attention is on what I can do and what I can't do, you're going to get very frustrated with life and you're going to be very confused, and you're going to be worn out, and you're going to get exhausted with Christianity, and Jesus is no longer going to be a pleasure to you because he's not your focus. The law is. And the law leads to death. And so he's like, Jesus isn't saying the rules don't matter. He's saying what matters is me. Put your focus on me. Pursue me. Desire me. Come to me. Pray to me. Follow me. And as you do, he will reveal step by step as you spend time in the word what are his commands, how to live them out, how to avoid sin, how to put sin to death, and so on and so forth, so that as you walk that Christian life, you're not living by the rules, you're living by the Spirit. So don't focus on what you can't do Focus on what you can do. And what you can do is you can obey Christ. Because, because of Christ, because of the righteousness he put in you, because of the Holy Spirit who's in you, you can obey. So it's a, it's a perspective shift. So for the believer that does these sins, specifically sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, for the believer that does these sins, sins which are marked for God's eternal wrath, we could biblically say, if you continue to, if you claim to be a believer and continue to habitually practice these sins, then that is evidence that you're not actually saved. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment call and say that person is not saved, but I'm going to say that it's biblical evidence that you're not based on Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or we could overcorrect the other way, overcorrect that approach and say Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even if you sin, grace covers your sin, it's okay. Both of those have truth. Both of them need balance. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't even bother trying to find the balance between those things. He doesn't want to play with the line. Instead, he says, make the line or make these questions obsolete by putting sin 
to death in you. If you are living in constant pursuit of Jesus, in his word, in prayer, in communion with him, searching the Bible for truth, repenting of your sins constantly, humbled by your sin and God's grace to forgive you, and you are constantly putting sin to death, being obedient in mind and in body, dying to yourself daily, picking up your cross, carrying that cross daily, suffering the hardships that come with radical obedience to him, earnestly pursuing a desire for him, growing in your desire for him. And when you don't have a desire for him, you go to him in prayer and you open the word and you say, give me, give me a desire for you, Lord, please. And killing the sin in your life with the righteousness of Christ and begging God for more faith and producing more faithfulness and hating sin and loving good and sacrificing your needs for the needs of others and faithfully and abundantly giving as he commands and serving his people and loving your neighbors. And I could go on and on if you're doing that constantly. You don't have to worry about the line. That's not legalism. That's obedience. If you're pursuing Christ like that, he will develop and build and grow desire and passion in you and holiness in you. Because the only way to do those things is not you, but Christ in you. And if you want to do that, but you constantly fail at doing that, that's probably where I think most of us feel. Most of us are probably like, yeah, 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 I like that life, the life you just described, that like super exuberant, passionate, powerful life of obedience, following Christ and doing all these wonderful things. And, you know, I, I want that. The problem is I just don't do that because I, I want to, to do it and I try to do it, but really I fail at it and then I get frustrated so as much as your little motivational speech was, you know, getting me jacked up, Pastor Mark, I really liked it, and I'm, I'm excited for today, but I know that tomorrow won't feel that way. Obedience is hard. That's why Scripture says fight. That's why Scripture says endure. That's why Scripture says run the race. Okay? If you get knocked down, in your sin, you're, I, I want to obey. I want to be righteous. I want to do those things. I want to pursue Jesus. I want to love God. I want to be joyful. I want, I want, I want, I want to do those things, but I don't. And then when you don't, you just live in the mire and muck of your own sin. And you're like, I guess I'm just here. I guess I'll just stay here. I would look at you and say, that's not how believers behave. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity says, screams up to God in when, you're, when you're down in your disobedience and says, Grace! Save me, God, in your grace. Pull me up and move me toward obedience. And the only reason you can do that is because the Holy Spirit is causing that obedient de declaration in you. Ezekiel 36, 27. So, if, if in your failure to obey, you stay there, We've got problems. But if in your failure to obey, we have humility and brokenness and repentance and cry, and look at the Psalms. Constantly, oh, I am a mess. Dear Lord, help me. If that's our attitude when we sin and we fail, and that's genuine. God will answer that call because that desire for God is obedience. In your failure to obey, as you sin, when you are broken and repent and humbled by your sin as a believer, to feel and experience humility, brokenness, and repentance, that is obedience. That is the obedient response to your sin. And God answers obedience. Psalm 37, 5, one of my favorite verses. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and what will he do? He will act. That means trust and obey, God will act. That's a promise. Take that to the bank. You can count on it every time. What we do is we go, I don't, oh, I don't obey, but I trust him. 
And I ask him for help, but he doesn't do what I ask. He's not acting. Well, because we're not doing our side of that equation, which is commit your ways to the Lord, that's obedience, trust in him, and then he'll act. And if in any way, shape, or form, that mentality, that, that produces in you a mentality of, ah, oh, God is a vending machine. All I have to do is robotic, robotically follow you know, his commands and trust in him, and he'll do what I say. That's not at all what it means. It very clearly means that you have a genuine desire for him that leads to committing your ways to him and obedience to him, which automatically is going to produce trust in him. And then what he does in you then is he puts in you the mind of Christ. He develops in you the thoughts of Christ, the perspective of Christ. And Jesus' entire life was committed to doing the will of the Father. Jesus knew the will of the Father. That's all he wanted to do was the will of his Father. So he does the will of his Father because he has the mind of his Father. And when we obey him and trust in him, he gives us the mind of Christ so that when we make requests of him, he fulfills them because we're asking not for what we want, but for what he wants because what we want becomes what he wants because we're committed to him and we trust him. And then he acts. So when you sin, and I think this is what happens. I really do think this is what happens. I think we sin and our first reaction is shame. Right? We sin and it's like, oh, oh, I'm bad. Especially when it comes to sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, because those are big no-nos in the church. Oh, can't do that. You do those in the church, can't tell the church about it, I'll get kicked out of church. They don't like sin. I mean, you know, it's full of sinners, but they don't like sin. They don't let us sin there, so they're going to kick us out. <laughs> so, like, how do we, how, you know, I can't, so, so instead, my shame just like covers me, and I feel terrible about my sin, and I just kind of sit in my little shame bubble. I get no help from any believer, because I can't tell them about it, because they'll just shame me for it, and I already feel shame, and I don't want to feel more shame. And shame is a great weapon by Satan, one of his best tools. It makes you feel shame, and shame you don't want to share it with other people, because that hurts your ego. It's actually arrogant to not tell people about your sin. It's arrogant in many ways. Number one, it, you think you can handle it on your own. You can't. That's why we have the church. And two, it's arrogant because you think that you don't need people, that you don't need the body. Imagine trying to eat without a mouth. What would you do? What would you do if you had tried to eat without a mouth? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. What would, your, what would be on your face? I don't even know. How would you feed your body without a mouth? A mouth is a part of the body. We need each other. Okay? I got hands. I can forage food. I can cut it up. I can prepare it. I can cook it. And I make this great meal, and I got nothing to do with it. I can't eat it. I'm missing that part of the body. We need each other. All the body parts function together for a purpose. We need each other. Stop feeling shame for your sin and start being humbled, broken, and repentant and bring it to people and confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Amen. That's a promise. Instead, shame covers us and we're afraid to share and we keep it to ourselves and we stay in the sin. And we never conquer it, we never beat it, and we spend the rest of our life trying to convince ourselves that it's okay, I'm still saved. It's okay, I'm still saved. It's okay, I'm still saved. I'm still saved, right? Yeah, I'm still saved. I'm still doing the same sin over and over and over again, and I'm too ashamed to tell anybody about it, so I'm actually just kind of stuck in it, and I'm never really going to quit, but it's okay because of grace. Show me that Bible verse that says that that's how the Christian should live. It's not there. Instead, it's like, bring your, bring your shame and your guilt and your worry and your sin to your brother or sister in Christ. Pray for one another. Help one another. Forgive each other as God has forgiven you. And lean into that forgiveness. And don't shame people when they do. Love them and pray for them. We have to have that humble, repentant attitude about our sin for 
for God to lift us up out of disobedience and toward obedience to him. Otherwise, you're just stuck in that sin. That attitude is everything. That perspective is everything. But one thing God cannot stand is a flippant, aloof, and apathetic attitude about him or obedience to his commands. I mean, look at Revelation 3, 15 through 16. Jesus is like, you're neither hot nor cold. So you're lukewarm, spit you out. That middle of the ground, aloof, kind of like, eh, about sin is not the way Scripture paints the believer's perspective about sin. Instead, the believer should, our verse, Colossians 3, 5, put it to death. That's a, that's a declaration of war. That requires a certain attitude and perspective that is not aloof or apathetic or flippant about sin. That is hatred for sin. And we should feel that hatred for sin. I'm going to go to Revelation and read a couple more verses for you. In this, so that's, that's the church of Laodicea. Revelation 3, Jesus writes to the church of Laodicea, you're neither cold nor hot, you're lukewarm, I spit you out. You're gross to me. You ever have coffee? How do you drink your coffee? Hot or iced? I drink mine hot, sometimes iced in the summer. You know. But I love my coffee hot. Maybe you love your coffee iced. I tell you what you don't love your coffee, when it was hot an hour ago. That's not good coffee. I have picked up cold coffee that was hot and I've sipped before and I've tried to convince myself because I didn't have a microwave with me and I tried to convince myself this is like iced coffee. This is like iced coffee. It's okay. It's not. It's gross. It's lukewarm. What do you do with lukewarm coffee? Spit it out. Right? It's gross. That's how Jesus feels about your aloof attitude toward sin and your aloof attitude toward him. Ew. Spit you out. Why does he require hot or cold? Why does he require passionate or refreshing? Because look what he does when we're not that. Revelation 2, 14, at the end of 14 he says, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's judgment. We read that in Revelation 19 with that sword. We talked about it last week or two weeks ago. That sword that comes out of his mouth is the word of God, double-edged sword. It makes war and it judges the nations. Go down to verse 21. He's writing out of a different church. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. What? You want to you wanna get to the heart of sin, tell a parent that God is going to kill their child if they don't repent. That, this, we have, we'd have to put that in context of not telling you that if you guys don't obey, God's going to kill your children, okay? That's not what he's saying here. There's a context to this. But what this does reveal is there are real consequences of sin, and they might be someone's death. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. They didn't do the Lord's Supper right, so people died. That was the Lord's Supper. It's not like they were going around like, doing crazy things like burning people alive or something. They just weren't practicing a ceremony right. And Paul's like, yeah, and because of it, some of you are sick and some of you have died. Verse 23, I will strike your children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. I could look at you and create a legalistic mentality and say, what do your works deserve? But then you're going to be like, all right, I better be good now. That's not what we want. Your works, if you're a believer, will be the works of Christ. Christ will work in his believers. We've established that already. The Holy Spirit will work in believers. So your works will be works that deserve the glorification of God. And if you're not a believer, you will get what you deserve. 
It sounds harsh. It sounds mean. I know. It's kind of like a brimstone and fire kind of, you know, mentality. I get that, and it's harsh, but it's what he says here. And for us to just have this flippant attitude like, ah, I'm saved, I'll be okay, is not the mentality of the believer that Scripture paints. It is the mentality of the believer that Scripture paints is, a, is, is, is the perspective of I need to, in the power of Jesus Christ alone and by his Spirit alone, not in my works, but by him, put my sin to death. And then I don't have to worry. If that's my mentality, I don't have to worry. So, so, Paul is changing the perspective, and we see the perspective change in verse 7. So Colossians 3, 7, he says, In these, that's the, the sins he just mentioned, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Those sins no longer belong in your life. They no longer, they, they belong in the sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of God is coming. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But then in Ephesians 2, 4, we find our place as believers, and we see these words. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say he has prepared for us good works that we should walk in them. Verses, verse 4 through 7 is who we are in Christ. And then in verse 9 and 10, we see how we live out that Christ-likeness today, which is works, good works that he has prepared for us to live today. That we should walk in them. Obedience is expressing who you already are in Christ. Any lack of that expression is just revealing who you were without Christ. And it's going to show up every day in many ways, all the time. Don't beat yourself up about it. Don't shame yourself about it. Repent. Be broken in humility. And repent. Remember that you're forgiven. And in the power of God's forgiveness, get up out of the dirt and follow him. This Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, that's who we are. Why debate how close we can be to who we were when that is who we are? Who cares whether or not a saved person can do or do not or cannot do these things and avoid hell? And what, make it a moot and obsolete point in your life by the way that you live. Make Christ your focus. Make him your desire. Make him your life. Make him your pursuit. Make him your everything. Make every decision through him. Make every move in him. Make all that you do about him and for him and because of him and to him because he alone is worthy of every ounce of your physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental being. Your life is now, Romans 12, 1, a living sacrifice to Christ. When we start each day with that kind of mentality, then we will never have to worry about whether or not we can sin just enough to escape hell and still be saved. And we will never have to struggle with assurance of our salvation. The church, I think, in the last, I don't know how many years, several years, the last 50 years, since the rise of the Pentecostal movement in the 60s and 70s, the church has twisted the Bible's teaching on assurance of salvation. And now what the church does is it just hands out assurance to anyone who said a prayer. I said a prayer. Oh, you're saved. Yeah, but what if I don't worry about the what ifs? You said the prayer. You are saved. But I haven't obeyed Jesus once in the last 10 years since I've been saved. Don't worry about it. You're saved. Assurance is all that matters. Assurance never shows up in the midst of sin. Assurance shows up in the midst of obedience. Because believers hate their sin, repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and obey Christ. Now I do understand that that process looks different for different people in different ways at different times. But why even question? Why even put that process to the test? Why say, oh, you know, it's been a couple years. I've been struggling with it. Paul says, put it to death. 
don't, don't give me that journey thing and it's been a couple years and I'm working on it. Just kill it. Just kill it. Don't, let's not talk about whether you can or can do it for how long and blah, 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 whatever. Just kill it. Just put it to death. Put the question to death by putting the sin to death. That will, that will create assurance. That will create assurance. Assurance of your salvation is proved in your obedience to your master. And when that's your life, then when you do sin, that assurance lifts you back up toward obedience. Instead of depending on assurance to lift you up, Obedience produces the assurance and catches us when we fall. Now, the theological discussion about whether or not a believer can do these things and still avoid hell and whatever, how much they can do and still avoid, it's a worthy theological discussion. It's definitely one that Christian and I have often together, you know, during the week in our office as we're having Bible discussions. Um, it's a discussion I've had with some of you. It's things we've talked about here at the pulpit before. And we could go on and on discussing it. But Paul just really wants to say these two things. You are no longer a child of wrath. So don't return to the objects of wrath. Because the wrath of God is coming for these sins. You're not a child of wrath. These sins don't identify you anymore. Christ does. So run to Christ and don't return, as Paul says in Galatians 5.1, don't return to the yoke of slavery. Don't return to the objects of wrath. Don't run to the pen that is filled with sheep that are going to get slaughtered. That's not who you are anymore. Now speaking, speaking practically, how do we make this a reality in our lives? How do we, how do I, so I want to run to Christ, I want to be like Christ, I want to have Christ, got to pursue Christ, got to desire Christ, that's the answer. So how do I do that? What do I do? How do I do it? Where do I go? Where do I find Christ? In the Word. Revelation 19, 13, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He is the word, his life was the perfect human expression of the truth of our written word in the Bible. And if we want to live like him and be like him, we have to know him and go to him and sit with him and learn from him and listen to him and speak to him. He will listen. So must we. The only way to put sin to death and build assurance of your faith that you are not reserved for God's coming wrath is to be washed in the sanctifying water of God's word this is why our church is turning our all of our ministry's attention to the word and the word alone outreach is the next pillar of our vision that will be modified outreach will be modified we need to describe for you not today we need to describe for you what the Bible teaches about outreach, what outreach really is, and where our church is going, and who we've become in the last two years if we've, as we have fulfilled the first two pillars of our, of our vision. And as, as we have fulfilled those first two pillars, it has changed who we are, it is changing who we are, and we need to adjust our vision, and we're going to. And whatever it is, is going to be centered on the word of God, I promise. God is changing who we are as a church because God is changing who you are as individuals. If any of this sermon has been discouraging to you at all, like, oh gosh, man, it's so harsh. Like, oh, it's like, if I don't obey, I just feel like I'm such a terrible person. That should not be the message you're getting. Christ in you is perfectly righteous and he is producing in you righteousness. Okay, God loves you in Christ. And he wants to sanctify you into righteousness. I'm just the one telling you, stop turning to who you used to be because it doesn't produce fruit. Look at who you are in Christ and let the Spirit lead you to righteousness where you will be more satisfied in God. 
And the more satisfied you are in God, the more glorified he will be in you. And that glory you will reap eternally. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that we do not deserve your word, we don't deserve you, we don't deserve your glory, we don't deserve your righteousness, but you give it to us, and you make us righteous. And yeah, there's a lot of like tough realities that we just kind of surfaced over today. And if any of it's confusing to your people, just, just remind them of this. You are making them righteous, and your word is the source. So just draw us into your word, and let your word shape us into Christ-likeness. Let your word sanctify us so that we can be more like Jesus. That's all we want. We all just want to be more like Jesus. We want to think about Jesus, love Jesus, turn to Jesus, follow Jesus, live for Jesus, love on Jesus, be loved by Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Why? Just make Jesus everything to us. He is all that matters, period. Just make us like Christ. Make us love Christ. Make us turn to him and think about him and cherish him. We can't go wrong. And then we can't go wrong. We love you, Lord, for giving us your grace and for loving us in Christ. Now let us love you in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here today. Have a wonderful day. You're dismissed.